The next day they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leave. He went to find out if he had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for fig. Then he said to the tree, May no, no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were buying and selling their overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who sell it doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. And as he thought them, he said, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teacher of the law heard this and began looking for the, a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they were along, they saw the fig tree wither from the root. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and doth not doubt in their heart, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask of me in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your, or your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, my name is uh, Toby. I'm one of the, uh, the pastors here. Um, and it's my privilege to uh, talk to you and to preach to you from this passage. Um, but before we do that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we can come before you now as our Father. And we can, we know, Lord, that when we sit under your word, it's easy to become distracted, Father. And we, we pray for forgiveness for that. But we also pray that you will give us uh, strength to really engage with your word by your spirit pray you'll open our hearts and make us um, love Jesus more and trust in him more and be more like him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we've been going through Mark, um, and let's just have a look at where we are in the story of this good news that Mark's bringing us. Um, so, we've seen that Jesus has authority over um, sickness, over nature, over spirits, um, Jesus has demonstrated his authority in the book of Mark so far. Um, he's also shown us the way of the disciple uh, to be like Jesus as a suffering servant. Uh, these, are, these are key things that um, Mark has been teaching us about Jesus. And it's been pointing to Jesus, uh, being Jesus going to the cross to be um, a sacrificial um, lamb. Now, 
what we saw last week was that um, basically the whole of Mark is building up to um, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Um, and it was almost like his ring walk, like a boxer going into the ring, entering Jerusalem last week. Um, and we've got an interesting little interlude here. Um, so we're here. Jesus uh, has cursed a fig tree and it has withered and he clears the temple courts. But it's really important that we remember where we are um, in the book of Mark, um, what we're building up to. And we're building up to Holy Week. We're building up to Easter. Um, and this bit in the middle is important. It's really important because it shows us the link between Jesus' authority, the way that Jesus does his ministry, but also Easter is coming. And this is right there. So we are currently on Monday. So the, the, the ring walk, that bit there we did last week, that's Palm Sunday. So that first bit of Easter, really. Um, and then we've, we're here. Um, we're on the Monday. Okay, we're on the next day. And it's building up. So, um, what we see here is that Jesus um, has a lesson plan for us. Um, and we have his structure recorded by Mark here. Now, um, I'm a science teacher, for those of you who don't know, uh, and uh, it's something which I find quite humbling, that whenever I read of Jesus, I see someone who's a far better teacher, unsurprisingly, uh, than I am. Um, and he uses a structure that's quite familiar, actually, um, but he uses it expertly. So that in, a, in a lesson, uh, it's a pretty good idea to actually surprise your students at the start. Some people call it a hook. Basically, you're, you're not giving them something that they predicted when they sat down in your lesson. Um, and that that's going to lead into the teaching of the rest of your lesson. Um, so, a bit of surprise to start off. Then, it's a pretty good idea to give a sort of practical demonstration. Um, actually make it concrete. Actually show um, your students what you're talking about. Demonstrate it. And then you need to give a bit of time to sort of analyze your results and apply. You can obviously see I'm a science teacher coming through here. But um, this is the structure um, of a lesson, and this is a structure that Mark records Jesus using here. So um, let's have a look at that first bit. Um, we see that Jesus curses fruitless religion. Now, there are no accidents um, in the way that Jesus records things that Mark records things by Jesus. Um, we've seen it already in the way that uh, Jesus, um, he speaks to um, the little children, he welcomes the little children, but in the next breath, he disappoints the rich young ruler who wants to earn his salvation. We see the way that uh, the Pharisees uh, show real lack of faith right after Jesus fed the 4,000. So Mark is full of this things coming after one another with real reason. Now, let's reread verses 12 to 14. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Pretty surprising, isn't it? Um, that poor old fig tree, what had it done to anyone to deserve that? In fact, um, there's been a lot of chat about this um, 
scholars, people debating it, that it seems that Jesus was a little bit um, impetuous, sort of just cursing the tree. It wasn't even the season for figs, it says. Now, Jesus literally curses the tree. Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching so far in the book of Mark, a lot of healing, a lot of revealing who he is, but he hasn't destroyed anything. Now, let's look at this. Okay, so look at this, um, and it says, at the very end of verse 14, it says, and his disciples heard him say it. Now, we've got to understand what the fig tree actually is in the Bible. Um, And the fig tree... Um, just what it is as a biologist, the fig tree um, is a tree which gives the very sweetest fruit. So the, it is the sweetest fruit. That is that is true. Um, and it has these beautiful, huge, lobed leaves that give give sheep that give um, shade in the heat of the day. And they take a long time to mature. You have to nurture them, but it's worth doing it. Now, the fig tree in the Old Testament symbolizes Israel, God's children. Um, it's often used in the same breath as the vine, that, that, that there's this sort of life-giving uh, fruit that comes from it, from God's children. Now, that fig tree um, had the appearance of a fruiting tree. It had its leaves out. That's what happens in springtime, is that the leaves come before the figs come. Now, we know we're at Easter time, which somewhat follows the calendar of the day. So we're in springtime. So Jesus has gone and he's approached a fig tree. Now, that fig tree in springtime would have had little buds of figs coming, which people in those days would have eaten, but it wouldn't have had its full fruit yet. So it seems strange that Jesus would curse the fig tree. But I think we've got to realize here, in the way that this is recorded, that this fig tree has actually been honored. It's been honored by Jesus because it's being used as a demonstration. It's being used as a demonstration of a beautiful tree that represents Israel that hasn't got any fruit on it. It has no fruit. And he curses it. People like Jesus, meek and mild, in a cradle. People actually quite like a lot of Jesus' teachings. But they don't like it when Jesus shows that he has authority. They don't like it when Jesus curses things. Um, and he doesn't go about it particularly often, um, but he does curse the fig tree here. He curses the fruitlessness. Now, if we're taking kind of God's people, Israel, as being like that fig tree, there's loads of leaves, there's loads of show, but there isn't much fruit. Now, as a biologist, okay, um, to have a fig tree, a fig tree has to have leaves to have fruit. The leaves absorb the, the sun, and that enables it to do photosynthesis, which means it makes glucose, which it then stores in its fig. So you need the leaves, so you need to have leaves to have fruit. Well, Israel had what it needed. Um, It had what it needed, unlike any other nation. It had the law, and it had the temple. Um, And there was a big problem in all of the history of humanity that that was separated from God. But the law and the temple were the two things which Israel had that no one else had. Now, the, the, the law showed how to pursue righteousness, how to pursue to be right with God. How are you right with God? The law showed you how to pursue how to be right with God. Um, Psalm 1 um, talks about the law. It says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, 
or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted in streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Now, obviously, the law, you're aware of the Ten Commandments, there was also lots of other ceremonial laws. Um, Often we break laws, we're humans, don't we? So our righteousness, being right before God, was actually demonstrated by that law to show that we're not right with God. That's what the law showed us, that we're not right with God. And the Israelites had something for that as well. They had the temple. Now the temple was built on a mountain in Jerusalem. And um, it was a place to symbolize God's presence. Um, It was presence of God in that temple. We'll go into that in a bit more later. And it was a place where the Israelites could go and they could humbly atone for their sins. So they could bring uh, sacrifices, sacrifices of unblemished animals to make up, to to show as a symbol of that sacrifice that their sins were serious and they needed to be made right with God. Now, what we're going to see is that this is Israel's story, but there was no fruit. Now, what am I talking about, this fruit? Well, the fruit is spoken of as the fruit of righteousness, being right with God. So even though they had those things, they weren't right with God. That temple was built on a mountain to be a witness to the rest of the world that being right with God was possible. This could allow relationship with the living God. Now, if you're right with God, you're able to have a relationship with God. Without righteousness, there is no relationship with God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. We chose to rebel as humans, in the picture of us. They're not right with God. There's no relationship. They're cast out of the garden. Now, what we saw is that the fig tree, that picture of Israel, had loads of showy leaves. It had what it needed, but it had no fruit. It had those outward signs of religion, but it didn't have the righteousness. It wasn't right with God. And Jesus has no time for this. Okay, Jesus has no time for empty religion. When you click on the BBC website and you see the next priest that's been um, done for, for some deviance, he had no time for that. Jesus had no time for people abusing power in church, structures of the church. He had no, no time for empty religion. He curses it. Now, let's remember that Jesus has authority. Jesus curses fruitless religion. Now, that's scary. As I said before, people like bits of Jesus that they choose, and they reject the bits of Jesus that they don't like. But what we see here is a Jesus who has authority to judge, to curse. Now, that's terrifying. <laughs> okay, And it's something Jesus has spoken of uh, later on in the Bible, and before, in the, before the whole of the Bible points towards Jesus, one day, on the judgment day, sitting in the seat of judgment. He's the one. People think about Father God, the, the Father as being the, the kind of the one who's going to judge. But no, Jesus is the one who judges, and he curses it, and he deals with fruitlessness. So fruitlessness is not being right with God. 
I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit edgy. I was certainly getting edgy when I was reading this. Now, so we've seen that Jesus curses that fruitless religion. He doesn't like it. Now, we've done this bit now, so he's, he's kind of, he's, the, the disciples are going to be pretty, um, gosh, he's cursed a fig tree, what's going on? It's now going to get to the demo, the practical bit, okay, where he actually sort of, in, in my lessons, this is when I would, I, I don't often don't let the kids do the practical because it goes horribly wrong, but I, I'll demonstrate to them how the reaction that I'm talking about works. Um, so, what we see now is that Jesus challenges fruitless religion. Let's read verses 15 to 18 together. Uh, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So, let's remember, Jesus has been walking up into Jerusalem. He's in the fig tree. It hasn't had fruit. He's cursed it. That is a lesson that's purposeful. It's pointing towards what's going to happen now. So let's imagine as they're wandering up the road, towards the Temple Mount, this, this area. They'd have seen the cream marble just highlighted by the sunlight hitting it in the morning. They'd have walked through one of the gates into this area here. Um, this is called the Court of Gentiles. Now, this is a grand place. We're talking it's as long as three football pitches. It's 250 yards wide. It's there to demonstrate. It's the biggest building in the Middle East at the time. It's there to demonstrate God's glory. It's there to demonstrate, tell us something about God. And there were different areas of separation. So on this outer area, you had the, the, the court of Gentiles. This is where people who weren't Israelites were allowed to come. They were allowed to witness God. They were allowed to see, see his work going on. But they weren't allowed any further. Then you had other different courts, different levels of separation until you got right into the very middle of it, you had the Holy of Holies. This was a place where 1,000 years previously, when Solomon dedicated the temple, Solomon was the guy who, um, as God had promised, was built the temple. It was going to be a picture of God dwelling right in the middle of his people, right in the middle of his capital. And Solomon prayed a prayer in which he sort of um, initiated the use of the temple. And God's Glory came down like a pillar of fire right down into there and filled it with his spirit. This is a pretty impressive place. A picture of God's presence, but also a picture of a little bit of separation as well. Now, there's a lot of heritage associated with these different areas. Now, this court of Gentiles had become something that it was never meant to be. It had become it become a bit like the rag market. Imagine that closeness, that um, the hustle and the bustle. It become a place which had been, instead of being a place where people could come and 
experience the idea, the, the picture of forgiveness and coming to God, it had become somewhere of commerce, somewhere where people made lots of money. In fact, Solomon's gate was actually just right by the court of Gentiles there, where that, that first incredible time when God had turned up in the temple, this is exactly the same place. Now let's remember the timing that we are at the moment now. I, sh- I showed you before um, where we were in terms of the Easter narrative. Well, with the Jewish people, this was the time of Passover. We're just coming up to Passover. It's not quite there, but we're building up to it, which is a time of incredible activity in here. I mean, there's a Jewish historian um, who's, a, who's a Greek, sort of, he's called a Hellenistic Jewish uh, historian, and he recorded once that there was um, 250,000 lambs slaughtered over Passover. So around this time, they were slaughtered in, in the temple. So we're talking, this is busy, this is bustling. And what we see here is that Jesus sees fruitlessness and he sees fraud. Because despite the fact that the temple still existed, it was being used as a place of coercion and a place of money-making. It was well known that the chief priests and the families of the chief priests were coining it. They were coining it, they were making money because people coming to the temple to um, make their sacrifices couldn't use money that had idolatrous images on it. So all the money of the day, the Roman money, money from surrounding nations, the gold coins would have all had images of different gods, and you couldn't use those in the temple. So you had to have money changers. And these people were basically people who were making a huge amount of money off people having to change their money into appropriate coinage to be used to sacrifice things, right? So we see that there's transaction going on here. The religious leaders, they were basically, they were in cahoots with the, um, with the money changers, with the people selling things. It was all about making money. And they didn't care about the outsiders. They didn't care that this area, the court of Gentiles, was supposed to be a place that was for people to see God interacting with his people. In fact, they were far more interested in putting profit before repentance. Putting money-making before repentance. Now, this should challenge us. Okay? This should challenge us. Because as children of God, as Christians, we have what we need. Okay? We do have what we need. Um, And we can see that Jesus really cared about outsiders because this court of Gentiles had been desecrated. It wasn't being used for what it should have been used for. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. Jesus hates the way that the religion has become all about transactions. How often are we guilty of those same faults? You know, we see here that this area that was supposed to be for the outsiders wasn't really cared about. I I know that I'm guilty often when I'm praying sometimes to list off things that I want prayer for, but I, I I won't forget. I'll forget other people. I forget to pray for other people. I forget the outsider. Often I'll put my desire for success, my profits, the things I need, ahead of repentance. These are things which we're guilty of. But you may feel a bit sorry for those money changers. You might think, well, why is Jesus just storming in and turning it over? Well, this isn't 
the first warning shot that's happened. Three years earlier, John the Baptist um, uh, is recorded in Matthew um, as saying, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are those religious leaders again, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. They had already been warned by John the Baptist. They'd actually already been warned by Jesus before that they needed to have fruit in keeping with repentance. There is a consistent message coming through here. Jesus judges, and we need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It must have seemed a bit like Groundhog Day for Jesus and his disciples. Because three years earlier as well, Jesus had gone up at the time of Passover into Jerusalem, and uh, John records it said, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others, um, sitting at tables, exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body, and he was raised, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus had already cleared the temple once. There had been lots of warnings. And he comes in again now, and he does the same again. He shows them what he views about fruitless religion. So we've seen here, we're now here. Okay, He's done all this stuff. He's got Easter coming. The fruitlessness and the fraud, he's, he's, he's rejected, he doesn't like it. Now, this should challenge us, okay? This really should challenge us. Um, but now let's look at something else. Jesus cures our fruitless religion. So we're now on the actual, what does this, what does this bit here, the demo, mean? Now, Jesus offers a cure for this fruitless religion. Okay, Let's read verses 19 to 21. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go you throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes what they say will happen. 
it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, do you notice that withered from the roots? The very source of life has gone right at the beginning. It's withered from the roots. This is a picture of Jesus putting an end to the showy, fruitless religion practiced in the temple. Jesus is going to offer a cure for fruitless religion. Now, fruit comes first from faith in God. Not from what you do, but from faith in God. You see that where it says here, Have faith in God. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. That's the first thing he says after the the tree is withered. So, fruit comes first from faith in God. Now, it's fueled by forgiveness. You see at the end, the last verse, it says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. It's not earned. It's fueled by forgiveness. Fruit comes from faith in God and it is fueled by forgiveness. What is faith in God? What does it actually mean to be have faith in God? Well, many of you will be very familiar with this. Faith in God is trusting that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what faith in God is. Now, faith that Jesus' death was the sacrifice for us. Those, the temple was a picture, was pointing towards Jesus. You needed sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. We are, we, we are not righteous. We are not right with God. We need Jesus. So where does the fruit come from? It's first of all going to come from faith. Faith that Jesus has done what he says he's done. Now, we see here, and I was really wrestling with this when I was preparing the sermon, um, about these, Jesus talking about um, the prayer of faith. Um, but actually, the more I've thought about it, we see here um, that prayer and faith is kind of the fruit of relationship. Okay. Now, remembering that Mark doesn't muck around about the way that he arranges things in the gospel, let's remember that Jesus... Um, really prays the little children to come to him. And, they, and he prays, he said that if, if any of you want to come to God, you need to come like these little children in faith. And you, you, Jesus says that just like children ask their father for, for food, and you'd always expect the father to give them their food, the same, it's even better with God. He's more faithful. Now, I think that's what we're talking about here. That this asking God for things and being expectant that he's going to um, answer those prayers, is part of that fruitful relationship. Now, I think this has been abused, this passage, and basically it's been part of the whole sort of name it and claim it culture, where God is treated more as a divine vending machine than as a, an almighty God who is to be in relationship with through Jesus. But that doesn't mean that it's not completely true. 
Jesus teaches in ways that can be understood at so many levels. On the first face of it, he's not lying. You can ask God for stuff, and when in relationship through faith, God will provide. But then it can also be read on other levels, whereby actually we need to take it in the context of Mark and take it in the context of the rest of the Bible. So, for example, Jesus' brother, James, speaks about you don't get what you pray for because you're not asking with the right motives in James chapter 3, verse 4. So clearly, God doesn't just instantly answer things. But I think even more compelling than that is that we can have confidence in God's power, just like Jesus, the Father, God's power, Jesus is God. But we also need submission to his will. Think about it. Four days later from where we are here, what happens? Four days later, what happens? Well, Jesus himself will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will pray, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, this cup of judgment. He was going to go to the cross. Take it from me, yet not my will, but yours. So we see that Jesus, he's in perfect relationship with the Father. And yet, he prays, and he will go, and he will go to the cross, and he will be sacrificed, and he knows that. He doesn't, it's, not, it's not something to be desired. This is awful. This is cosmically significant, what happens on the cross. However, he prays with that humble submission. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. We've had beautiful testimony today of really difficult things happening in people's lives and still having the submission to say, your will be done, God. Your will be done. So we can pray, and we can pray with confidence that God will answer. Right motives, but also with submission that God is sovereign. Now, I'm going to go right the way back to what I said at the beginning when I said, when we were talking about the fig tree. If if you have faith in God, faith that Jesus has been taking the sacrifice for us, that he um, is enabling us to have a relationship with God, you can pray in faith, and you will be like a tree that is planted by streams of water. That first bit of the Psalms which yields fruit in its season. So that is available to us now. Now, let's remember that Jesus curses fruitless religion, challenges fruitless religion, and he he cures fruitless religion. He cures it through faith in God with a relationship which bears fruit. We can all bear fruit, and we've just got to cling to Jesus. We've got to repent of our sins, turn back to him, Daily, daily, fruit is available. Let's pray now. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God, a good God who has given us Jesus Christ as a way to have relationship with you and a way that we can be fruitful through faith, dependence on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.